Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's talk more broadly about these markets, the ones yep. that Goldman Sachs have been trying to navigate over 2022 that, look, most of Wall Street got pretty blindsided on. We want to talk about all of this with Callie Cox, of course, who's going to be joining us, U.S. investment analyst over at eToro. And Callie, as we sort of digest what was a brutal cross-asset year in 2022, are you licking wounds at this moment? Are you thinking more optimistically about 2023? Where do you stand? Well, hey, I'm a cup half full person, and Good. I think it's hard to say that 2022, yeah, it's hard to be these days, but uh, I think it's hard to say that 2022 wasn't painful because of that cross-asset sell-off, just the pain we saw across a bunch of different markets. But I think that that could portend good things in 2022, uh, knowing that investors are sufficiently anxious and they're properly hedged going into 2022. I mean, the whole talk of, or 2023, the whole talk of the economy this year was about whether a recession is coming. So I do take some comfort in the fact that a lot of us are braced for that and you know, weakness may not catch us off guard. Caroline, I have a real problem with Callie Cox. Oh, she is a proud alum of the University of North Carolina, <laughs> Chapel Hill, and as a Duke person, this is Ooh. really troubling. I will try to power my way oh, no. through it as a gentleman. <laughs> Callie, you know, a lot of folks are saying there's still earnings risk in this market, and this is still something the market has to deal with in 2023. How do you guys think about that? Well, Paul, first of all, I respect Duke. It's a great, great school. Uh, we have a healthy rival. Yes, we do. Of respect. Uh, I, I think there is uh, quite a bit of earnings risk there. We haven't seen earnings estimates come down too much, um, and I think that's partially because companies have been resilient um, and demand has been um, much healthier than expected. But we're still watching Fed rate hikes and a bunch of other risks matriculate throughout the market. Um, and companies are, like we talked about at Goldman, companies are responding. They are you know, putting their guards up a little bit just to make sure that they are prepared if we do see more weakness. Again, that's a good thing that could keep a floor under earnings, but I don't think the weakness is quite priced in yet. And that could uh, lead to new market lows if we see hmm. some recessionary price or some recessionary cuts being priced in. Go global for us, Callie, because perhaps more weakness to come in US stocks. What about global stocks more broadly? Have we seen enough of the pain trade there already in the likes of Europe and Asia or no? So globally, I think there are a lot of opportunities for U.S. investors if they're willing to think outside of their borders. Uh, obviously, the global economy is in a more precarious position right now, uh, with some bright spots, China reopening being the uh, brighter one going into the new year. But the fact that the global economy is out of step with the U.S. economy could allow for some interesting diversification opportunities going into 2023. You know, the fact also that, you know, European markets and Asian markets have priced in a lot more pain uh, does make them ripe for, you know, more of a rebound, especially if we see ourselves come out of this weakness. Hey, Callie, you know, really since, I don't know, the, last, the great financial crisis, what's really been 
driving this market in large part was technology stocks and maybe you know more narrowly defined the fang stocks and things like that but mm. do you ex what kind of role do you expect big tech to play in the next market move to the extent that we get a little bit of a a lift in a, maybe sometime in 2023 well so tech is an interesting space right now obviously there are a lot of different flavors of tech uh, the big tech companies look a lot different than the more speculative tech companies and we've seen that in performance throughout this year uh, you know, as we step forward to a Fed pause, most likely, um, you know, potential rate cuts in the future because the Fed is insistent on getting inflation down uh, and there could be a policy change after that. I'm talking way far into the future. But as we step forward to that, as we prepare for, you know, a potential bull market after this, uh, it could be interesting to, you know, maybe look at those more quality tech companies, uh, you know, big tech with strong balance sheets to get some exposure to a market that's looking ahead. Uh, we don't necessarily think rate cuts are on the horizon and you know tech in a higher interest rate environment uh there could be a lot of pain still there for a lot more um for the more speculative companies but at the same time yeah. you really have to be thinking ahead here and big tech could be an interesting spot to do that and the nasdaq currently up almost two percent as we speak thanks to the likes of apple microsoft tesla even getting in on the action again today with an eight point net change on the benchmark but talk to us go cross asset as we see in many ways the correlations of this year has been when the bond market has sold off yields risen nasdaq has sold off in sympathy what do you make of the bond market for coming 2023 are we like to see yields being capped out at these sorts of levels or we like to start to see a little bit of buying at these sorts of numbers well, we're in a weird environment, but I think we can all agree that inflation is slowing and it's going to take a lot to you know, get it back to the peak that we saw this summer. And I think that's good news for bond investors, uh, especially if we do see a recession in 2023, which definitely is not out of the question here. Uh, we could see bonds return to their traditional role of being that safe haven asset, especially around the world for global investors. And that goes back to the global economy being out of step with the U.S. economy. Um, lots of you know, pain there, but also lots of opportunity. So, you know, we see opportunity of long bonds, um, obviously shorter bonds, shorter term bonds follow mm. what the Fed is doing. And it doesn't look like the Fed's going to be hiking much more from here. So uh, we could see a return to, you know, a more traditional asset correlation. All right, Callie Cox, great stuff. Thank you very much for taking the time. I guess good luck to the UNC Tar Heels uh, going <laughs> forward this season. Callie Cox, yeah. U.S. investment analyst at eToro. We appreciate uh, getting her thoughts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Ken Shea, he's uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. He covers the, uh, all the consumer stuff, including cannabis for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us via Zoom. And Whitney Beatty, Josephine and Billy's Cannabis Speakeasy joins us via Zoom from Los Angeles. Whitney, love to get with you first here. All right, we'll go to Ken Shea first because he is our rock, so rock star as it relates to kind of covering the business of cannabis. Ken, how big is this for New York City? Um, you know, getting its first legal pot shop and kind of how do you think that's going to evolve in, in New York? Yeah, hi, Paul. Happy holidays. Great to see you again. Um, it is really a big deal. I mean, New York is a, a huge market. It's a highly visible market. And I think a lot of other populous uh, 
areas in the United States that haven't legalized are going to be watching this closely to see how it pulls it off, how it does. Um, New York's a large market, and it has high hopes, and no pun intended. It looks to its neighbor, New Jersey. New Jersey, you know, legalized recreational only back in April. It's already up to a $1 billion run rate wow. in sales. New York's got twice the population. So you, you put the math together and you have a really big industry out of the gate. The demand is going to be there. It's, it's product's been around a long time. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, all eyes are on New York. It's one of the, the most visible market okay. to really uh, get a sense of what's going on. You do some great analysis for us, and we always love it that sort of bringing together some of the issues that perhaps still the spending bill didn't have the marijuana banking element to it. And we saw a lot of pot stocks fall on the back of that, that many still say to really grow this industry, they need to be able to get bank loans. They need to be able to get a more easier access to capital. But I'm interested in your perspective of why we've already seen the ability when I walk outside of Bloomberg to cross the store, cross the, cross the street, and I can go and get edibles. I can go and buy certain marijuana-related food and consumption. What is that store doing now? And why has it been able to do that ahead of this sort of legalization? Well, New York is, is taking a different approach, I'll uh, put it that way, than many markets in, in allowing you know, the social justice theme to allow uh, some flexibility, let me put it that way, to some operators that won't exist in, in many other markets. And that's going to at the consternation of the legal operators. You know, legal operators saying, look, we're paying all these taxes. We're mm -hmm. going jumping through all these hoops. We're doing a lot of things here. Help us out by enforcing the laws on the books that, you know, you, you can't have someone down the street selling it uh, legally and avoiding taxes if you're going, if the regulated uh, entities are going to compete well. So that's, that's really going to be a key issue going forward. And it also may, uh, you know, also discourage some other mm -hmm. big entities from getting into the New York, New York market until they enforce those rules. Really interesting that you bring up social equity there. And we thank you so much, Ken Shea, of course, of Bloomberg Intelligence. And we want to dovetail into that exact point, because what's so interesting with this development of the cannabis market here in New York is that Kathy Hochul and the governor have been trying to think about how it's ensured that the people who've in the past perhaps been targeted for cannabis infractions now actually manage to benefit from the legalization with jobs, with opportunity. And they've set up a $200 million New York social equity cannabis investment fund. This is something that we've seen perhaps in Illinois as it started to embrace legalization. How can they try to foster growth, particularly among people of color, ensure that they're leading businesses? It's not always worked that well of late within the licensing process, particularly in Illinois. Let's talk about how it's working in LA. We've got a perfect guest, Whitney Beatty is with us, founder and CEO of Josephine and Billy's. It's the first cannabis speakeasy in the US that's for women of color targeted there. You took checks from Jay-Z, cannabis investor, the parent company as well. Just talk to us about your journey, Whitney. How have you found yourself able to lead this sort of a business? I mean, it has definitely not been easy to get into this space. Um, and particularly, you know, even with social equity being what it is, it's really um, hard for us without having uh, access to that capital to grow our businesses. I mean, I applied for social equity in Los Angeles in 2019. Um, our program here um, had a lot of delays. And unfortunately, we were required to hold property through all of those delays, mm. which was incredibly difficult for us, you know, to sit and pay for two years, um, you know, on a place that we were not allowed to sell cannabis out of. Um, that really hurt us, especially when we're talking about a population that is, you know, the idea of equity is that communities of color were disproportionately disenfranchised by the war on drugs and thus deserve 
prioritization and legalization. And so um, that really kind of drained our funding. And when we're talking about, especially equity businesses, we don't have that much access to capital, as you mentioned. I mean, I can't go down and get a loan from Bank of America. The SBA isn't offering loans. We're stuck in a world where we have to be able to raise money from either angel investors, which a lot of people of color don't have in their networks, or VCs. And we know that VCs are giving about 2% of their money to women-led businesses and 0.0006% to women of color. And that is, you know, abysmal numbers. It makes it really hard for us to compete. So, Whitney, just give us a sense of kind of where your business is now. What's the outlook as you, as you look ahead to the new year? I mean, we're, you know, it, it becomes really difficult for us on a couple of different levels. It's, you know, being able to have raised enough money. We've raised a uh, million dollars, but really we need two in order to be able to compete with big MSOs that are there on the market. It's also really difficult for us because of the tax structure here. I, you know, as a legal cannabis business, I can't write anything off because of 280E. Um, you know, so that overhead is sitting on us. And also I'm competing again with the illicit market. Market. Um, you know, if I'm going to have to, you know, they're charging you $100 and I have to charge you $137 because we have 37% tax here, it makes it less attractive for people to be able to buy from the legal market. And it also makes it less attractive for those people in the illicit market to come into the legal market. Um, so we're, you know, we're concerned about what the future looks like, especially as we see the price of plant fall, um, you know, tremendously. I mean, we're talking about, you know, uh, pounds that were going for $3,500, $4,000 now, um, you know, sub $500. So what we were looking at as we're building projections in 2020 is not necessarily what we're seeing now in mm. 2022. Whitney, a lot of the obstacles you outlined there so eloquently, what about some of the help you therefore need? Is it about cracking down on the illegal side of the businesses coming from the government? Is it about having more funds coming from government, as we're seeing here in New York, to be able to back businesses such as yours? Is it about educating VCs about angel investors to ensure that you are raising two million rather than one? It's about all of those yeah. things. We definitely see, have to see taxes go down. It's, it's critical, and we need the community to understand why that is so important. A lot of people sold legalization on the ability to tax the heck out of us, but that's not going to allow this industry to survive. We have to see more capital coming into this space and have access to it. Um, for, you know, these equity businesses, whether that means that the state um, allows us to be able to have more grant programs, more, um, you know, loan programs. I'm happy to take a loan. The fact is, is that I cannot do that. We don't have access to that. We definitely need more education on the VC side. Um, you know, businesses ran by women, businesses um, ran by black women. We do have great success rates. We do have the skill set out there. We just don't have the access to capital in order to compete with someone who is sitting on millions of dollars who can definitely drop the price of an eighth mm. and, and wait us out as we die and then collect those licenses up. So we need all of those things in line. And also for equity in particular, we need technical assistance, um, you know, within the community because the cannabis industry is highly regulated. I'm dealing with compliance issues on a daily basis. So if we don't have the skill set, you know, especially because there's not necessarily a roadmap, this uh, industry is incredibly new. So being able to have a, a, a technical assistance that's going to allow people to be able to be compliant and be successful in their businesses is what it's going to take um, for equity businesses to succeed. So Whitney, it sounds like an extraordinarily challenging outlook. Is there any relief that you see out there? What keeps you going? What keeps me going is um, 
are the people that I'm helping at the end of the day. I came to cannabis because I had a doctor who suggested that I try to deal with um, anxiety. Um, you know, I didn't use it when I was younger. Um, Nancy Reagan told me to say no to drugs. I believe her. Um, so it took me a while to come to this space. And I had to do a lot of research on the plant, learning about how to use it effectively, and also about why I felt so negatively about it. And I didn't want the next person to have to do that much research or have such a hard time. Because what we know for sure is that especially when we're talking about our demographic, women are more stressed than, than men and women of color are the least, most stressed cohort out there. And yet we have the least access to healthcare. And when we do, do have healthcare, we know that the doctors aren't necessarily listening to us. That's what the data is saying. And we might not have money to cover that. So being able to have safe access to affordable cannabis within our communities, also public health is being able to offer that to people with anxiety, with PTSD, right. with all the things that we know that cannabis is good for. And so waking up and knowing that I'm offering that in my community and giving them education that isn't available elsewhere is what keeps me moving within this space. All right, Whitney, we wish you the best of luck. Challenging uh, situation, but some interesting opportunities out there. Whitney Beatty, Josephine and Billy's Cannabis Speakeasy, joining us uh, via Zoom from Los Angeles. Talk about well, when you're on your aeroplane, you've managed to make it to the destination of choice. How are you feeling? How are you spending? Where are you going to spend it? Well, is it a hotel group? We're pleased to welcome a key CEO from that space, Larry Kukulik. He's president and CEO of BWH Hotel Group. You know it, of course, of Best Western Hotels and Resorts, but also you're talking economy, mid-scale, upscale, upper, upper scale. I'm liking to see that that's a turn of phrase, but also luxury and boutique segments. Look, you've got 18 brands, I think it is, Larry. Are they all full? Where are you seeing the most exuberance as we head into the new year? Well, we're seeing exuberance across all of our markets, of course, uh, and segments. Uh, the demand for travel is robust. Uh, we are experiencing a tremendously successful 2022 holiday season, and we anticipate uh, and are projecting our most successful New Year's weekend ever as well. So, Larry, talk to us about the day-to-day -day operations. I'm going to go to something that I've noticed. No, uh, you know, service to service the room for three, four days. Now, I know that was a byproduct of the pandemic. Are we going to get daily housekeeping back into the business model, or is the industry moved on to something that's maybe every two days, every three days, every four days? At Best Western, we encourage our hoteliers to offer everyday service. Um, Guests um, have the option to request that they don't have that service if they have their personal concerns. But we understand that guests have diverse requests and requirements with regard to overnight service. Um, you, it's not just the COVID, uh, I'll call it uh, a COVID result. You also see um, the hotel industry having labor challenges, yep. which is also influencing that overnight service that's being offered. But we encourage our hoteliers to offer overnight service. So one of the things, uh, Larry, is as we think about travel, is the leisure travel seemed to come back pretty darn quickly. Uh, business travel, a little bit less so. What are you seeing from your perspective for business travel as, as you head into 23? Yeah, we're focused on midweek business, which is that business travel. Um, while it has lagged uh, leisure travel coming back, we're seeing that um, businesses recognize the importance of face-to-face -face meetings, conferences, and um, while it's been, I'll call it, lagging the leisure return, we're looking forward to it coming back um, in 2023 
um, to pre-pandemic levels. And what you also have to consider is there's this push for international travel mm -hmm. as well, which plays an important role with regard to midweek and mm -hmm. international business travel. Let's talk about that international travel. Let's talk about the news that is so fresh this week. The fact that China has basically done a massive U-turn and is now going against its COVID zero policy. They now want to be issuing passports, issuing an ability to not only enter China, but also for the Chinese people to be back in the skies and visiting, well, New York, London, different international destinations. Are you excited? Trepidation? What does that mean for you and your business? Well, we're excited about it. We think Asia is a tremendous opportunity um, for the rebound, and uh, Chinese travel plays a, a major role in that. You know, we understand China has lessened its restrictions, but you also have to understand, while you can be optimistic in that regard, there will be some, I call it, compression associated with the lessening of those restrictions, and you can see that happening al already with the United States, India, Japan, Italy, putting in place, I'll call them testing requirements with regard to inbound Chinese travel. So while it should have a positive impact on international business travel and international leisure travel, uh, you have to be cautiously optimistic because there will be countries that are concerned with regard to the health, welfare, and safety of their citizens. What is number one on your sort of consumers' concerns or hopes right now? Is it that they're worried about COVID? Is it more the inflationary pressures? How are you expecting that to impact post New Year? Are we gonna be as desirous to get out to spend as potentially this global recession starts to bite? We think there is still that pent up demand uh, post the challenges of the pandemic that hasn't yet been unleashed. Mm. Um, so we are optimistic about travel in 2023. Again, you have to be cautious with regard to the impact of the Ukraine war of inflation, fear of a recession, which can influence consumer confidence. There's supply challenges, labor challenges. There are a lot of, of unknowns that can, I'll call it influence outcome, but we're optimistic because what we have seen is by way of example, January, February, and March uh, exceeding pre-pandemic performance mm. uh, with regard to occupancy and also with regard to rate, average daily rate. So while we're very confident that we have early signs of a tremendous 2023, you have to continue to monitor the pressures on that confidence that I just mentioned. Larry, you mentioned labor before. I'd love to get a sense of just kind of what you're experiencing right now across your hotel groups. Is those labor challenges, are they moderating or is this something you're breaking, baking into your model for 23? We're, we're, I don't, I wouldn't say baking it into our model, but what we're doing is trying to help our hoteliers as much as we can with regard to those labor challenges by providing them assistance, training, and support with regard to those hoteliers becoming an employer of choice um, through a program like the Because We Care program and Best Western being a family of independent hotel owners that recognize the importance of being good citizens in their communities. And, yeah. and as a result of that, they can become that employer of choice that can successfully overcome labor challenges. Larry, which hotel are you going to be at for New Year? I'm going to be at home, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a, a, a non-rocking the boat answer. We thank you. Have a wonderful time at home celebrating in this new year and one that seems pretty optimistic. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. All right, let's switch gears. Let's take a look at the U.S. and European economy here as we head into 2023. A lot of challenges that are common to other parts of the world, but of course they also have uh, the geopolitical issues in Ukraine as well, and that's impacting kind of, I think, forecast for a lot of folks and outlook for 2023. We're going to check in today with Dean Turner. He is the uh, Chief Eurozone and UK Economist for UBS Global Wealth Management, joining us from London via Zoom. Dean, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, I guess the, the economic discussion du jour is recession, no recession, how deep will it be? For the UK and Eurozone, what's your call here for 23? Well, as things stand, we still expect to see a recession uh, in both uh, the Eurozone and the UK. Um, I, I wouldn't be expecting a particularly deep recession, you know, peak to trough of somewhere around 1%. But that said, I think a couple of things have changed in the last uh, last few weeks. Um, the first being that uh, incoming data has actually been a bit better than uh, what we were expecting, certainly. So, you know, that places some upside risks, certainly to the fourth quarter numbers, um, perhaps in the first quarter as well. And I think the other thing that, uh, as you mentioned, you know, the war in Ukraine and the impact that that's had uh, on, on on, on our economies via the uh, via the energy price, I find it very interesting at the moment. If you're looking at the charts for gas prices in particular, um, how far they've fallen uh, in recent weeks, and you know if that is continued, then that probably places another bit of upside risk uh, in terms of the growth forecast. So, you know, as things stand, I'd still be you know looking for a, a slowdown, but I think we have to accept that slowdown may maybe even shallower than what we previously thought. How interesting. Just talk, tell us about how European economies, the UK economy, are getting a grip of the inflation and what might be soothing a little bit, as you say, when gas prices start to fall. We have seen an awful lot of labour tension at the moment, not a, most acutely in the UK, as, as we so know well, but also in Europe as well. I mean, we're starting to see it here in the US as well. Strike action. How much are we likely to see that being an implication, a slowdown in economies, or is this really something more that grabs the media headlines rather than impacts economies more generally? I think we, you know, we have to say that the economic impact so far has been limited, and I would be my expectation that going forward. Um, we, we will we will see more industrial action. I I I, I think that's uh, that that's a given. But is it going to be enough to cause a wider shock to the labour market? I don't think that's the case. You know, this is not the 1970s. The percentage of workers who are unionised um, is is much less today. Moreover, the bargaining position of workers is uh, it's, it seems to still be relatively weak. And you know, the, and the reason I say that is that yes, we are seeing. Um, wage increases coming through in the data. Um, workers are successfully negotiating a pay rise, but they're still negotiating a real terms pay cut. Mm. So, you know, until that changes, I, I, you know, I, I'm reluctant to change my outlook in terms of the impact that uh, some of the labour market tightness we're seeing will have over the medium term. It's here for now, but I, I wouldn't expect it to build into something that uh, a problem over the longer term. Hey, Dean, we actually had the uh, the Bank of Japan just a week or so ago kind of throw in the towel, if you will, and say, OK, we're willing to let rates go higher following, you know, the rest of the central banks around the world. The Bank of England, the European Central Bank, 
what's your outlook for kind of their actions in uh, going into the new year? I still think we uh, we should be expecting that the central banks are going to increase rates as we go through the first quarter. Um, you know, certainly from the ECB's perspective, I think that meeting in December uh, provided us all with a number of uh, surprises there. And if you take them at their word, um, interest rates are going to 3% at least uh, in, in, in the Eurozone. Um, I, I would also argue the same for the UK. You know, we're probably looking at rates going uh, north of 4% um, uh, in, in the first quarter of next year. But you know that said we are against this backdrop of economic growth is slowing inflation pressures are easing two factors are driving that let's be clear about this you know the first is the base effects that we're seeing in terms of higher energy prices from last year are starting to uh, uh, weigh down on headline indices but also weaker demand you know mm. I, I find it interesting when we're looking at the some of the survey data which you know survey data we have to take with a, as a certain degree of caution but I do find it interesting that you know companies are already flagging a reluctance on the behalf of consumers to accept further price rises at, at the current rate so that weaker demand outlook I think is going to compound that uh, um, that downward pressure on inflation so I'd still be of the view that you know the peak is probably well we're closer to the peak the, you know the the end of this hiking cycle than we are the beginning accepted there's a little bit of uncertainty around where we're going but I think market pricing is probably still a little bit too aggressive for both uh, both the eurozone and the UK you know markets looking for three and a half we suspect that um, that the that the ECB stops closer to three percent. So we've sort of talked about almost the mandate of the central banks at the moment, the inflationary pressures that we've talked about, the labor that we've talked about, and indeed where you see the central bank's actions going. What about more broadly, therefore, the, the resilience, the, the, the moment, the, the feeling in the market that you get in terms of opportunities to be putting money to work and indeed whether the economies are likely to weather a storm better or not? Do you think overall we are starting to see people see value at this time or really is sentiment and just just still on the floor? Well, as you take the surveys, um, some of the investor surveys at, uh, at face value, it would still seem that most investors are still pretty cautious and indeed our own positioning is still quite a cautious one you know we're focused on um, defensive focused on value um, focused on protecting for the downside because as things stand from current levels we think there's probably you know still still quite a high chance that, uh, uh, that 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 we do see further volatility but that said you know what 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 is starting to come through we think is that you know sentiment is likely to turn sooner rather than later and um, a company are companies looking as strong as they are perhaps here in the US? Have they got the right balance sheets in place to weather it? Um, I, I think across the board, if we, you know, I'm looking at macro data, and, it, and my sense is that corporate leverage, for example, isn't uh, uh, isn't particularly high or at worrisome levels. The other the other thing I'd note as well is that profit margins are holding up and being far more resilient mm. uh, than uh, than most people are expecting. So, yeah, perhaps there is um, um, a, a bit of upside risk there, but you know, short term, we still think it's better to be positioned a bit more defensively and a bit more cautiously in these markets. Uh, Dean, great stuff. We really appreciate you taking the time. Dean Turner, Chief Eurozone and UK Economist at UBS Global Wealth Management. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.